All right, we are in the Corinthian letters. We're in the second letter. Paul intended for his letters to be read in the churches that he sent them to, and then again passed around from uh, congregation to congregation because what he was writing was more than just specifics. It included general information. But obviously, he was writing uh, much of what we call the New Testament. So we're in the second letter. Paul is in this letter explaining that the apostles and the ministers that are with him are ministers of the new covenant. Uh, That new covenant is both now and to come. Uh, It's not a deal where uh, the Old Testament was up until, uh, or the Old Covenant was up until the cross, and then the New Covenant just replaces everything. Uh, As I said before, the Old Covenant uh, had a problem. The problem was the flesh. And what the, the Torah couldn't do because of the flesh, God did in sending His Son, condemning sin in the flesh, guaranteeing a resurrected body, so that in the kingdom we will be able to obey the commandments of God fully. So the commandments, like furniture of a house, transfer from the old covenant into the new covenant, but in the new covenant uh, we will be empowered and able to do that. We struggle with that in this life, because Paul says... There is suffering now that identifies us with the death of Christ so that the resurrection of Christ will be fully identified us in us when it takes place. And so he says, we speak now based on our faith. I believe and therefore I speak. Not of the old, but of the new. He says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the greatness will be of God and not us. And so while we wait for the resurrection, there is suffering We carry the dying of Jesus in our bodies so that the life may also be manifest in the resurrection. And our focus then is to be on the eternal and not the temporal. The temporal is seen, but the eternal is unseen. So then he finally says these bodies uh, do uh, prevent us from being with the Lord. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. And we trust God that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed. Death and suffering does not prevent either the love of God or the resurrection. And so he concludes by saying, our goal then, whether we're in this body or not in this body, is to be pleasing to him. And the answer to why we want to be pleasing to him is because there is a judgment that will determine our place in the kingdom So while we will not be condemned with the unbelievers at the great white throne judgment, we do stand before the judgment seat of Christ where we will give an account for everything done in the body and we will suffer loss or we will be given reward and place in the kingdom. So we have gotten up to that point, by the way, in the Eastern Church today is Judgment Sunday. They focus on that. In the Western Church, it's Transfiguration Sunday, uh, both of them preparing for Lent, which takes place this week. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, we're going to go through the end of this chapter, which is just a few verses. Uh, Paul says these words. Because of all that I've just said, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. Now what he's saying is, look, we're focused on eternal things. We're focused on the things of the kingdom and not this world. 
We're in this world, but not of it. We're, we're trying to be focused on those things. And because we know the fear of the Lord and the terror of the Lord and His righteous judgment, we are seeking to persuade, convince, and influence uh, people to understand that the Lord is going to establish His kingdom in righteousness and He's going to judge unrighteousness. So he says we do two things. We persuade men. We're telling men of the judgment and the salvation of the Lord focused on the world to come, not this present one which is passing away. But he says we're also made manifest to God. Our faith and hope is demonstrated to God because God sees and knows us and is able to judge our motives and our actions for he knows all things. Now that's fascinating. When he says manifest to God, what what he's really trying to express, I'll give you two examples. I'm not sure either one is great, but you'll get them. Um, if you saw the movie uh, or the stage play of Camelot, There's in the song this idea that for one brief shining moment, there was this everything working the way it should. Uh, I've talked about this over the years, that as a a congregation and a community of faith, as we try to manifest obedience and faith to the Lord, we have these brief shining moments when we basically are saying to God, we get it. We know what we have been called to. We know what you will ultimately do in our life. And we're, we're acting that way. The other example is like a little kid who begins to see his father doing something. And he then starts doing the same thing in, in uh, a fashion of an imitation. And in that imitation, there is the acknowledgement that he wants to be like his father. Uh, those who have this faith want to be like the Lord and we want to grow in grace and in knowledge. And then Paul says, and I'm hoping that as we're doing this, as we're living in a way that manifests our faith, manifests our hope of the, of the age to come, that it will make us manifest in your conscience as well. In other words, that you will know who is genuine in the faith and you will count us in that context. Now this is important because he's about to talk about how we should judge other people and including them and how we should function in this kind of context. So in the next verse he says, We're not again commending ourselves to you, but giving you occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Now, This is a difficult verse unless you're paying attention to the context. Paul says, look, not talking about what we're doing in obedience to the Lord to commend ourselves to you because we're not doing it for you. Okay, Remember, he says, our focus is on the Lord. We're wanting to please Him. And we hope that you see that. But we're not doing it so you will see it. We're doing it so the Lord will see it. And we hope that you take notice of that. Uh, Because we want you to be able, and he talks about pride here. It's really problematic for Americans because we think of pride as ego. Uh, But if you've ever seen a kid do something well and you say, gee, I'm proud of you for doing that. It's that kind of thing. He says, I want you to be able to be proud 
of me as your founding pastor and as your leader in this context, uh, when others who judge by appearance are naysaying us. Now remember, and Paul's going to talk about this later in the book, wherever Paul went, there were problems. He'd end up in jail, he got shipwrecked, he got people doing riots. Everywhere he went, uh, there were problems. And it would be very easy, looking on the outside, to say, what a jerk. This is not a man of God. There's chaos in his wake. But if you see with eternal eyes, if you see with spiritual eyes, they spoke that way about Jesus. There were people that loved him and people that hated him. The same thing. And the issue is that Paul's saying, I'm hoping that you're looking beyond the appearance and you're seeing that what we are doing is suffering for the cause of Christ. We're not suffering as evildoers. And if you know that difference, you'll be proud of us and you'll be able to give an answer to somebody who questions that. So he says, we're not trying to convince you of our genuineness. We're explaining this to you to give you an occasion so that you can be supportive of us. And you can defend your support of us with those who look and take pride in that which is seen. Remember, we are not looking at that which is seen. That which is seen is temporal. That which is not seen is eternal. Now in that context, he's now going to give a broader teaching in the next few verses. So in verse 12, he said, uh, verse 13... Uh, by the way, uh, this is consistent with an enormous amount of scripture that basically says man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Okay? And what Paul is trying to get us to do is to begin to look the way God looks at things. Look at the heart. Look at the intent. Look at the uh, unseen aspects. Don't look at the appearance. So in verse uh, 13, he says this. Uh, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Now, God's spiritual and he's eternal. So when we focus on the things of the kingdom, they will appear to be foolish to the natural man. And so we appear, he says, to be fools and out of our minds. The text here in the Greek is pretty interesting. He says, if, if we're... Uh, kind of chaotic and mindless and, and crazy from the appearance of it. It's because we're focusing on spiritual things and the things of God, and those are stupid in this world. And then he says, but if we are functioning to address you, then what we do is we do that with a sound mind so that we can talk to you and reason with you and that you will understand. So it gives the appearance that we're kind of living in two worlds, and in some sense, uh, we are. Now, Paul's going to talk about this, assuming that they read his first letter and they know what he's talking about. So let me uh, mention that by having you read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, Paul talks about the wisdom from above versus the natural man. And in verse 6, he says, We do not speak wisdom... Uh, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, which is passing away. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. 
a wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. They had no idea what God was doing. They looked on the outward appearance. But as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard, which has not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. To us, God has revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches the, all things, even the depths of God. And who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man in him? So in the same way, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received that not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, so that we may freely know the things given to us by God. And these are taught, not in words of human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Why? Because the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually understood. But he who is spiritual understands all things, yet he himself is not understood by others. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he could instruct him? No one. But we have the mind of Christ that we may understand. Now, this last week, I heard an interesting story. There's a student of Dr. Lewis and I who's been taking the Christian behavioral classes. And he was talking to somebody who was starting a grad program. And in the context of that, he was talking to that person and saying, I'm thinking about going into the counseling ministry program, theologically based instead of theoretically based in, in psychology. And the other person said, you know what? And by the way, we hear this story all the time. But here's what the person said. Uh, I like what Dr. Lewis and Dr. Stokes says. I, I, think that, I think that's biblical. But they don't live in the real world. In other words, if you live in the real world, you're going to move into the behavioral sciences and you have the Bible stuff on Sunday. I get this all the time. I have people who always say to me, well, you know, we really like what you teach, but it's not practical. It can't be done that way. I've, I've spent my entire adult life living this way, so has Dr. Lewis. My children were raised in that, and they live that way. My grandchildren are starting to learn to live that way. Uh, and we, we're doing fine in this world, maybe not by some people's standards, but we're doing okay there. But our focus is on eternal things. And if we're wrong, when we die, that'll be, we'll just be fools. If we're correct, then our place in the kingdom will be significant compared to the people who thought the scriptures weren't that practical. So, it's a, it's a, you're betting your life one way or the other. You're going to go with the world's way and the church's version that's tried to accommodate the world as much as it can. Or are you going to try to follow a biblical pattern and, and be open to dialogue with those who are in the world, which is what Jesus did and what Paul also did. So it's this notion of saying there's a spiritual reality and if you have spiritual eyes, you get what's going on. You navigate still through this world. But if you don't, then what you're going to do is try to pull spiritual stuff into this world and you end up usually in superstition. So we reach now uh, verse uh, 14, 15 and, uh, together where Paul then says, Because the love of Christ controls us. 
Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, we're back to what is the essence of the gospel. There are two versions of the gospel around today. One very popular. It became popular in the 60s. It's very popular now. And it's basically the God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. His plan for your life is for you to get everything that you want and should be able to do. And so what you need to do is you need to accept Jesus so that he will give you your fire insurance and you'll be spiritually on layaway until the second coming and now you can live your life and he will bless it. The other one is you have to give up your life. You have to die to self Take up your cross and follow Jesus and live according to kingdom process uh, so that you will manifest that to those around you. Uh, That one has fewer followers because the layaway Christianity is much easier to do because I can can do whatever I want and have God bless it uh, versus I have to see what God wants and follow him. That really is two different roads. So Paul says, he died so that those who live, in other words, those who have come to know him and now have life, will live following him. And so this is really about lordship. Uh, They will not live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, He says, if you take that approach, then you have a different perspective, different worldview on how you look at people and the world. And that's verse 16 and 17. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now, what Paul says is we're not looking at the temporal anymore, that which is seen, but we're looking at the eternal and unseen. And then he gives a a striking example. He says, even Messiah, Christ, in the flesh is not our focus. I dare say for most of the church... The incarnation is their primary focus. The incarnation is very important. And we have just gone through the season of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany to see the importance of the incarnation. But incarnation without his death and without his resurrection provides us nothing. It is in the resurrection that we see the glimpse of the kingdom to come. So when we became a believer, he says... We become part of that. Uh, So anyone who is in Christ is part of a new creation. The old things are passed away and new things are coming. Now what's he talking about? Well, Paul is talking about the gospel in the Old Testament, which is the book of Isaiah. So let, let me have you look at a passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah 65...
Isaiah 65, verse 17, God says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his life. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred. And the one who does not reach the age of one hundred will be thought to be accursed. It's almost like the pre-flood period when the lifespan is a thousand years because this is talking about that thousand year kingdom uh, when the Lord returns. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. Uh, For as the lifetime of a tree is, so will the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. And they will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. They are the offspring of those blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. And it will come upon that when they call, I will answer. Before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lamb won't be inside the wolf. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. It'll be vegetarian. And the dust will be the serpent's food. That's a a tie back to the Garden of Eden. And they will do evil or harm no longer in my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now what's he saying? The time's coming when the Lord is going to restore the earth. And the new covenant is part of the beginning of that. And so he's saying, I don't want you living like you're still in this world. I want you living like the world that's coming. I want you to be transformed, passing, letting those old things pass away and move into the new things. And ultimately, that is the goal of the New Testament, which we see in Revelation chapter 21. After the earth is restored, it will actually be replaced with all things new. And John says, I saw in a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer a sea. Now, I think he's talking about the oceans will not divide the continents. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, already made uh, like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will dwell among them. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Now if you compare those passages in Isaiah and, and Revelation, you'll notice that they're not exactly talking about the same thing. There will be a restoration of this earth when the Lord returns and a kingdom to come. There will be mortals in that time. And so there will be offspring and death. And, but, it, but sin will be minimized with Satan bound. And we will be resurrected and rule and reign with him during that time. And so our obedience in this life prepares us for the judgment as to where we'll be in that kingdom. 
Then when that kingdom is done, that heaven and earth will pass away with a fire. A new heaven, a new earth will be built. A new Jerusalem will come down. This one doesn't have a temple. The previous one will. And in that one, there will be no death. And there will be no tears. And so we have the best of what this world could be as he created it in the kingdom to come. And then a greater thing which we can't imagine in the new heaven and new earth. Most of that theology has been lost in two ways. An amillennial view that says there is no kingdom to come and Israel doesn't matter. And another one that says when we die we just all go to heaven and the new Jerusalem is up there. Both of those are incorrect. But they are very popular and keep us from living in a way that we anticipate the kingdom to come. So, in the context of this, he says these words in verses 18 to 21. With that, I'll kind of shut down here. Now, all these things are from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, and we beg you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. Because he has made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now people know that text. They get that text. Uh, But they think of it as simply personal salvation. Personal salvation is part of this. But God is talking about restoring his entire creation which is what salvation is about. And so uh, we get this understanding where his eternal purpose is the reconciliation of the creation to himself. And that reconciliation ministry has been given to the apostles. So the message that God was in the Messiah reconciling himself to the world, not counting their sins against them, is known. That's the part of the gospel that we get. But what we do with it, is the problem. If we simply think, well, I have my fire insurance and now I just wait for heaven, we miss the point that coming to him is to be part of that reconciliation and begin to manifest before God that we get it and to be seen by other believers that we get it and to manifest to other people that that change is coming so that it will be attractive to them. Paul says it will be one of two things. It will smell like death to them. Or it'll smell like life. And so that's what he's talking about. And, and then he will tell us when we need to do this. Well, early, early churches began to question this because of the delay of Jesus coming. And so they began to think that the best thing to do is wait as long as you can and then come to Christ. So many, many people in the second and third century put off their baptism. I believe it. And I'm, I'm, going to get, I'm going to get serious with God, but I'm going to live my life, and then I'll get serious with God towards the end, which is a foolish thing to do. So Paul wants to address that 
and he's addressing it. Actually, if they had read this, they might not have taken that attitude. So in chapter 6, I'll just read it. We'll talk more about it next time. He says, Working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul talks about people who believe in vain. These are the people who are going to come and say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did this, you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. You who don't obey my commandments. So he says, at the accepted time, I will listen to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. And Paul says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And he's going to say, and we'll do this next time. So don't give an offense to what God is doing in making you a new creation. His goal for us is that we turn from our old life that's caught in this world and the passions and the lusts and the desires of this life and we focus on the life to come, not a life that's going to be in heaven on a cloud with a harp, but a life that's going to be on a perfect earth in a perfect condition with family and friends and people that we have loved who will then be in resurrection and we will be rejoined with them. That's an incredible thing. But we've got a generation out there that doesn't want to get married, doesn't want to have children, doesn't want to do anything but become super significant and successful in this culture. And that will burn and go away. That's part of what's passing away. The things that we're doing in our families and in our homes and in our lives that have eternal perspective and eternal commitment will be part of that resurrection and we will see the full salvation of the Lord. Paul tells us we can work against that and we can actually demean the message and the glory of God in this life and he's going to warn them not to do that and uh, we'll talk about that next time. So let's pray.